All right. Now, the other thing is I want to try to sort of move through this uh, as quickly as I can because, as I said, I do want to move on, do something a little different. Then I want to get into doctrine. You know, I want to take us through our doctrinal statement and get into it a little more uh, carefully than we do at our Discovering Beth Ariel because we need, to, we need to understand what the Bible teaches about a lot of different things, and that's what a doctrinal statement. So it'll be sort of like an introduction to Bible doctrine. And, you know, it's a basic thing, but it's a good thing. Uh, and then you come Saturday morning, uh, Eitan's got his class on the book of Galatians. So many of the things we're covering here will be reinforced, and there'll be some new things too, of course, because it focuses on Galatians. But we're looking at Galatians too, also, uh, to some degree. So, Okay, so we're looking at this. Uh, we're going to go to Hebrews uh, chapter 7. And I've made reference to this, but uh, we can talk about this. <clears throat> I've made reference to it, but we'll focus on it a little bit more. Uh, so let's start in prayer. And then we'll, uh, we'll jump in. Father, we're grateful for this evening. We're thankful for this place. And uh, we're, we're so uh, appreciative of your word that has endured the centuries, uh, the millenniums. And uh, we're grateful for those that were entrusted with its writings and with its preservation. So, Lord, we're grateful uh, that your word is in our hands in this day and age. So help us as we... Uh, investigate it as we reflect on it. And uh, we would pray for our body. We pray for our ministry. We pray for Beth Ariel. There's so much that uh, I know you desire uh, to do through our work here. May you bring it to fruition. Uh, Guide us now, we pray, for we ask in Messiah's name. Uh, Amen. Okay, so let's see. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 11. Now, if there was perfection through the Levitical priesthood, for under it, hath the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should arise after the order of Melchizedek? What a great question. If the Mosaic law was all that was needed, and it was, uh, it was uh, per- sufficient for our relationship with God, why was there a need because that, why was there a need for a priest after the order of Melchizedek? If the Levitical priesthood was fine, the Mosaic law, which undergirds the Levitical priesthood, the reason there's a Levitical priesthood is because of the foundation upon which that priesthood stands, which is the Mosaic law. So as long as the Mosaic law stands, the Levitical priesthood is the operating priesthood. If it was sufficient, why then did we need a priest who is not Levitical, but Melchizedekian? That's, the, that's his argument. So the point he wants to make is perfection was not possible through the law. Verse 11, if there was perfection through the Levitical priesthood under the law, why did we need a priest who was not under the law but under the order of Melchizedek? So his point is we need it because perfection could not be attained through the Mosaic law. Perfection of any kind. He doesn't limit, the writer that is, doesn't limit the idea of perfection. He's not talk, just talking about justification before God by which we are declared righteous. He's not talking merely about being made holy before the Lord. He's talking about the whole gamut of God's plan of redemption when he uses the term perfection from beginning to end. That 
neither salvation nor sanctification nor glorification can be attained through the law. Perfection of any kind. Perfection in terms of right standing before God. Justification. Perfection with regard to, uh, to, with regard to the development of holiness. Sanctification. The perfection with regard to glorification. When we stand completely transformed uh, before God. None of those things can be attained, accomplished, brought to fruition through the Mosaic law and specifically through the Levitical priesthood. Therefore, a better priest than Aaron was needed is what the writer is pointing out. And that better priest cannot be Levitical because we would still have the same problem with regard to the Mosaic law. It has to be a priest that is Melchizedekian, not Levitical. And the reason why Melchizedek, although we're not going to get all into him, is because he was uniquely a king-priest of Jerusalem. Ancient term, I understand, uh, for Jerusalem, Salem. He's the king-priest of Jerusalem. The upper Jerusalem. Uh, okay, but uh, he's a king-priest. And therefore, Messiah can be both our king and our priest. We talked about that at Passover, and we talk about it frequently. He's our great high priest, not even just our priest, not even just our high priest, but our great high priest. And this better priest is not in accordance with the Mosaic law. Why is that? Because he operates under a better covenant, the new covenant. So now I don't want to deprecate the law and I'm not fighting with the law. It's the revelation of God. It's holy, just and good. But we're trying to understand exactly what the writer is telling us. We have a better priest. Why? Because he's neither Levitical, he's not Aharonic, and he's not Mosaic. He is new co- a new covenant priest. He's Melchizedekian. And because he's a king priest, he's of the tribe of Judah. So he's altogether different, and thus he's better than our Levitical priest, as wonderful as Aaron and his descendants and the Levitical priesthood was in providing us a temporary covering for sin through Yom Kippur sacrifice and other sacrifices, as wonderful as that was for Israel, it was a far cry from what we experience now through Messiah and what he has done for us. And one of the things the writer wants to make known, and we're going to see this when we get to verse 25, where he says, wherefore also, talking about Messiah, wherefore also he is able to save to the uttermost, which means he can bring about perfection in every sphere possible. He can save to the uttermost, whatever our need is, whatever the uh, situation we face. He can transform us and provide whatever need. But now notice this. He's able to save to the uttermost those that draw near unto God. Now, what the writer's trying to say is the Levitical priesthood, contrary to what is generally understood, could not enable us to draw near to God. It appeared like they could enable us to draw near to God because they were always in the temple, they were always officiating, they were always offering the sacrifice. So we looked at them and said, hey, they are our mediator, they're helping us draw near to God. But the writer to the Hebrews is telling us their function actually served to reveal 
that we could not draw near to God. In what way? The high priest only once a year could enter the Holy of Holies. One man once a year in all the people of Israel could enter into the Holy of Holies. What did that illustrate? I can't draw near to God to the extent that the high priest could. The women could not enter into the court of the men, could not draw near to the temple with the holy place and the holy of holies. The Jewish men could not offer their own sacrifice. The Jewish men, unless they were priests, could not enter the holy place in the temple. The Levitical priesthood of the Mosaic law was revealing to the extent to which we could not draw near to God. Although we always think about their serving as enabling us to draw near to God. But the writer to the Hebrews is saying, no, you're misunderstanding their role. Their functioning is showing you can't get in here without the things that we are doing. And even when we do them, you still can't go in here. We have to mediate for you. But what our high priest enables us to do is to enter in near to God. We can draw near unto him. We can address him, our father who art in heaven. We can pray to him. And and most importantly... The Spirit of God indwells us. And so we are drawn near to God in a way that the Israelites prior to our experience through Messiah's coming and all that time, we can actually draw near to God, whereas before they could not actually draw near to God. That's an interesting way that the writer looks at this. So for this better priest to serve... Verse 12 tells us the law had a change. For the priesthood being changed, there is made of necessity a change also of the law. So to those uh, individuals that look at the law and say, hey, this is forever. And there are many scriptures that say it. We need to understand the Hebrew word olam, and there may be other words, but the Hebrew words translated forever do not mean without end. They only mean for a lengthy period of time. And so the word is used in certain contexts where there is a termination point, even though the word forever is used. For example, slaves. You know, an individual could become a slave to somebody forever, it says. But in actuality, his servitude would end when the debt is paid or the year jubilee, when all debts would be removed and all slaves are set free, even though... The law speaks of them as being a slave forever. So we're not getting into the, into the rudiments here of the, of the words and all of its usage. Otherwise, again, it gets set back. But my point is saying the law, we'll look at this in another context, the law must be changed in order for Messiah to be our great high priest because his priesthood is not Levitical. And therefore, since it's non-Levitical, The law which sustains the Levitical priesthood has to be changed so that his priesthood could stand upon the Melchizedekian order of priests. As long as the law operates, a priest after the order of Melchizedek cannot serve. The law, the Mosaic law, has to change. That's what verse 12 is saying. It's telling us that for the priesthood being changed, that is, For the Levitical priesthood to be changed to a Melchizedekian priesthood, which Messiah is a priest in that order, the writer says there is a need for a change of the law because the law is the foundation upon which the Levitical priesthood stands. If the Levitical priesthood is going to be ended, 
so that there is a Melchizedekian priesthood, the law must end. Otherwise, it's always a Levitical priesthood that only can serve as the high priest of Israel. But he's telling us Messiah is our great high priest, and he's a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Therefore, the law must change. In fact, he speaks of it in the past tense. The law has changed. So now, this better priest was of the Melchizedekian order, not the Aharonic order. That's what he says in verse 11. But nevertheless, the ultimate point is that the mechanism upon which Melchizedek served is the same mechanism that Messiah serves. Now, in this case, they're saying they're one and the same. I don't, I'm not of that camp. So, but the point is that the writer to the Hebrews is making is that Messiah is a better priest and his priesthood is not in accordance with Aaron or the Levitical priesthood found in verse 11. So the better priest's authority derives from within, not the external commandments, is his point in verse 16. So that he says, And what we say is yet more abundantly evident, if after the likeness of Melchizedek there arise another priest. And this is why I think they're, they're separate. But verse, or at least this would seem to indicate that. Verse 16, Who has been made not after the law of a cardinal or external Commandment. It doesn't mean carnal means sinful because the commandments are not sinful. They're holy, just, and good. So he means by carnal, external. So he says, who has been made not after the law of an external commandment, but after the power of an endless life. And so the sense of endless life or eternal life is an internal reality. It's that which denotes the very character and essence of the priest itself, himself. So our high priest, Messiah, his authority is derived not from the external commandment that Aaron would be a priest in his family, but from an internal reality that in him is embodied all life. So we also have a greater authority. So what are we finding? We're finding the law must change in order for Messiah to be our high priest. It must change because the law's priesthood must be Aharonic and Levitical. But Messiah is neither of the family of Aaron or the tribe of Levi, and his priesthood is Melchizedekian. So since Melchizedekian priesthood is a priesthood that is forever, that priesthood is of a greater significance or authority than one that had a beginning and an end in, this third point is, external commandments rather than an internal reality, a commandment that is given as opposed to life that is embodied in the very person who is our high priest, he himself. So then he says, the Mosaic law, therefore, of necessity has been set aside, verse 18, for there is a disannulling, a setting aside of a foregoing, a foregone commandment. So he says, it has been set aside. This phrase, by the way, is very interesting, too, because it's Greek usage in other places. I don't know if I gave them all later, but to be set aside has a negative connotation. It doesn't just mean to be set aside and placed in an equal footing, but rather set aside 
in terms of it's no longer being operative or, uh, or, of, or effective or serviceable. So it's not just set aside in the sense of, oh, something is added and we've got two things, a supplement. It's really a setting aside in the sense of it's brought to a conclusion, a termination, an end, a fulfillment, which is what Messiah said. I came to fulfill the law. So for there is a disannulling, a setting aside of a previous commandment. Now we get an idea of what he meant by the law must be changed. Its changedness is seen in its being set aside and brought to its conclusion and therefore its termination. And so we've entered a better hope because in verse 19, whereas the Levitical priesthood did not help us draw near to God, Messiah's priesthood, him serving as a priest, does enable us to draw near to God. And thus James will say, draw near to God, and he will draw near to us. So the reason we can draw near to God is because Messiah is a better priest than Aaron. Aaron was a great priest. Our high priest is a greater priest. The Mosaic law was, was and is a great body of revelation from God. But as a covenant, it is inferior to the better covenant, superior covenant, which is the new covenant. Because the Mosaic law, as wonderful as it is, pointed to, witnessed to, anticipated the coming of a better covenant, which is the fulfillment of, the realization of what the law pointed to. It is the reality, not as the writer will say, the shadow. It's the essence of what the law was uh, speaking to. And Messiah does clarify that in the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard it said. Some say that that phrase is denoting what the rabbis said, but it doesn't have to be taken that way because the law was read, and so it was also spoken. So there are some scholars that believe when he says you've heard it said, he's not talking about what the rabbis said about the law, but what they heard read to them from the law. And that in a way, he is therefore putting the true interpretation, not of what the rabbis understood, but of what the law meant to convey. And so when it says, the law said thou shalt not kill, what you heard may have been then interpreted in your mind as meaning I shouldn't take another person's life. And you would have been right in that. But you wouldn't have been correct. You, know? you would have been right in understanding that it referred to don't take a person's physical life. But it meant more than just not taking a person's physical life. When you deprecated their character, either by saying raka, you know, which was a demeaning of their ability, usually referred to how a person thought. And so it was a demeaning of their ability to think clearly. And whereas thou fool, which is the Greek word moranos, we get the word moron from it, which spoke, was used to refer to the, the person's ability. So if you deprecated a person because of how they thought about things, what their perception of something was, their ideas might be, how they interpreted something, if you had deprecated somebody by saying, you know, you're an idiot to think that's what the passage means. You know, you're an idiot to think that 
whatever you want, you fill in the blank, is what Raka referred to. If you said you're incapable of doing X, Y, and Z, that's what the word thou fool was used for. So Messiah is telling us that when you destroyed or attempted to destroy a person's character, either with regard to how they thought about something or how they did something, you, you were slandering them. And we slander people sometimes by making fun of how they think or by how they behave. And when we do that, Messiah is telling us we are violating the commandment of thou shalt not kill. And we are, in effect, hating without a cause. By the way, the phrase, if you hate without a cause, without a cause is in very good manuscripts as well, although in most translations it's not included. But it could very well be that he's saying that if you hate someone, or angry with someone, I should say, without a cause. Now, he's not condoning anger indiscriminately by saying that. He's only drawing attention to when you are angry and you're angry with even to the degree of without a cause, particularly without a cause, then you are and go beyond uh, and as a consequence of that anger, you slander a person by way of their ideas or how they think or their process of understanding or, um, or their actions then you have killed that person. You have violated uh, that commandment. Now, I would also say, while one can be angry and sin not, I will say, from personal experience, we oftentimes claim that to be true, but I've rarely seen it to be true. More often than not, our anger is uh, energized by personal affront rather than what... Uh, I mean, I can understand Messiah was angry, righteously, so there is such a thing as righteous anger. I just don't know too many of us who are so much like Messiah that we easily emulate righteous indignation. The reality is, as sinners, that our indignation, even if there is an element of righteousness, it is quickly lost because we do not end our anger quickly and we do not settle our disputes quickly or fairly, as Messiah tells us we ought to do, so that we're not thrown before the judge and find the consequences greater than we had first thought they might be. Ruined relationships or ruined abilities, you know, is is the kind of thing he's talking about. So, you know, we really need to be very cautious about what Messiah expects of us uh, because as uh, we, talk, we talk about uh, the law, you know, we, what we're learning is that Messiah had perhaps a stricter understanding of what the law really meant to convey and helps us to understand its true intent. And it only served to further reveal our sinfulness and our waywardness because none of us do it. We all get angry without a cause. We've all slandered. We've all violated the commandment, thou shalt not murder. 
And that's why we need the transforming grace of our Lord to um, do it less and less. And hopefully at some point in our lives, maybe not do it at all. But I think it's a tough one, uh, as all of them are. All of them are. Okay, so now in Galatians 3.19, let's see if we can go through this. How's your back? Okay. So Galatians 3.19, because uh, I, I do want to fly through it, like I said. And it's not to, uh, I don't want to, I don't want to keep you from asking questions or sharing. I appreciate your thoughts, Eitan, uh, and others. But I do want to move through if I, if I can, so I'm not, we're not doing this for another six months. So Galatians 3.19, uh, these are very powerful passages. What then is the law? Which is another set way of saying, uh, why therefore the law, or what is the purpose of the law? Now, unfortunately, I didn't get the chance to animate this, right, so it would flash on, so you can see full screens, and that's fine. But, uh, so we ask, what is the purpose of the law? In this context, Paul is... Definitely, without any question, uh, referring to the Mosaic Law, because he does use uh, the definite article in the Greek text. Uh, Hanamas, I show it there to you. So he is saying, what is the purpose of the law? Not that he has to use the definite article every time, but he does use it here. And, uh, and it's what's also interesting in the Greek text, because Greek's an interesting language. The order of words can be played with, because the endings to the Greek words are case endings. So these case endings tell you what is the subject, what is the verb, what's the direct object, what's the indirect object. You can put it any way you want in a sentence, and we know how the sentence must be translated because of these case endings. So when you want to emphasize something, you would put it in the front end of the sentence, if that's what your purpose was. So it's interesting that in what Paul writes here, the word transgressions is in the emphatic position. And if that was his intention, of course, that's... You know, uh, that's always a debatable point. But it would seem to indicate, to me at least, that the focus of the passage is to explain that in this context, the law has its primary relevance to transgressions. So some people think the law's primary relevance is into enabling us to live holy. But Paul seems to take a different point of view. He seems to be saying, at least here, if not in other places, that the purpose of the law is not to make us holy, which it cannot. It itself is holy, but it can't make us holy. If it could, there'd be no need for priesthoods and sacrifices because the law in and of itself can't. So what does it do? It makes known to us what transgressions are. Paul says that in Romans. We would not know it was sin unless the law said thou shalt not covet. He says in Romans that we did not know what sin was until the law was given. He's not saying in, in that Romans passage that we didn't know about sin. We knew about sin, but we didn't know about transgressions. And they're really different, though related. We knew what sin was. It was rebellion against God. But transgression is a transgression of a standard or a law. So Paul is saying, until God says, makes clear, thou shalt not, we don't have transgression. We have sin, but we don't have transgression. And he uses those words in very subtle distinctions. Sometimes they're used interchangeably, but sometimes they're used distinctively of each other. And that's what he's doing here. He's talking about the law, and its purpose is to reveal to us the significance of law-breaking, not just disobedience to God. Although law-breaking, once the law is given, is an act of disobedience to God. But prior to the law is given, 
It's disobedience. It's not transgression. And that's how he utilizes the words distinctively, although sometimes we use them interchangeably. But in technically, given certain contexts, they're not uh, synonymous as such. So, okay, so Paul mentions a number of purposes of the law in other passages. So in Romans chapter 3, if you want to turn, you can look at it. He tells us, and we just made reference to it, he tells us the law provides us with the knowledge of sin. So he says in Romans chapter 3, by the way, Eitan, I read an, uh, an interesting article and commentary on the question you raised after, before. When he speaks about the law, are Gentiles in violation of the law even though they, they're not given the law? And I read some point of view where they say they are. Even though the law specifically is not given to Gentiles, nevertheless, they're still violators of the law, whether it was given to them or not. And, and there's further explanation about it and how Paul seems in some places to use it that way. Uh, that's not right. Can't be 5-5. Five, five. Um, I think 520 maybe. And the law came in besides and the trust. Uh, okay. Verse 20. For the law came in besides that the trespass might abound. But where sin abounded, grace did abound more exceedingly. So he wants to say that it provokes sin. It multiplies sin. It makes sin abound. So not only does it reveal to us sin, but it also, it doesn't cause sin, but it intensifies sin or it multiplies sin or it, re, the result of it is that we sin the more and it becomes more exceedingly. Uh, Romans, it's really Romans 5.20. And I think also 19, although I didn't read it. For as, uh, right, verse 20, and the law came in besides that the trespass might abound. But where sin abounded, grace did, did so much more. And then in chapter 7, verse 7, it says, And what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Because it, it provides knowledge of sin and it provokes sin and it multiplies it. Is the law therefore sin? He says, no, it is not. It provides the knowledge again. He says, God forbid, I would not know sin except through the law for I would not have known covenant except the law had said, you shall not covet. doesn't mean that he didn't know you shouldn't covet, but he wouldn't have known it as a transgression or as a commandment of God if God had not yet given the commandment. So he's not saying we don't know about it or that we don't know it to be sin, but we don't know it to be sin in the sense that he's talking about it until God lays it out for us. And now what does the law do? Does it help us not to covet? That's his point. It doesn't help us not to covet. It just points out our sin more clearly. We knew covenanting was wrong, but we could rationalize it. You know, like uh, in um, uh, Les Mis, he coveted the pie in the window because his family was starving. So whether you believe he's right or wrong to provide for his family, after all, it was only a pie. We understand it. It's still a violation of the law. That was, you, get, you don't covet, you don't steal. I mean, it's stealing, it's not coveting per se, but they're related. But the moment the law says thou shalt not steal, it's clarified, it's clear. We know it clearly now. 
It's not that we didn't know it. He knew inside, but he rationalized it and said, my family's life is more important than this person's money. And we may be right about that, but it's still a violation of the law. And as a violation, it's clear that he has violated the law. And similarly with us, it's clear. There's no mistaking it. Inside, somebody may argue and we may rationalize, but once the Lord says, it's clarified. And that's what he means to say. In Galatians 3.24, we're looking at 3.19, but if we went to 3.24, we would found that we would find that the law also was a pedagogy. We get the word pedagogy uh, from that, meaning to teach, to instruct. And um, so a pedagogue in the first century was a slave that was, uh, that a young child was entrusted to who would raise that child from childhood through adolescence into manhood, maturity. Once he became a man, he no longer needed the pedagogy. Paul says the law was like that. The law was like a pedagogy, a slave that was attached to us to bring us through from the knowledge of infancy regarding Messiah to maturity so that we would realize the depth of our sin, realize that by our own works and effort we cannot obey the law, therefore please God, and come to that point where we realize We are in need of faith in what God has done for us. When we've come to that point, we have entered adulthood. We've entered manhood. The law was an instructor along our journey to make sin clearer and clearer, to provoke sin within us, multiplying it as it were. And as a consequence, we say, you know, left to ourselves, we can't do this. It's exactly right. So what do I need? I need Messiah who would pay the penalty for my sin and who would then empower me to change through his own life and through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. When we've come to that place, we've reached maturity as an adult. That's not to say we don't grow further in our knowledge, but we're no longer children or adolescents. We're adults. And now as adults, we continue to learn, but we learn from the point of maturity to further maturity, not the point of infancy to a point of adulthood. We are now adults that grow as adults. And the writer to the Hebrews will say to us, it is time that you are no longer to be feasting on the milk of the word. But when you feast on the milk of the word, you've entered adulthood. When you now no longer need the milk of the the word, you've matured within the context of adulthood. So let me, let me just go on. So um, in, my only point in showing you some of this, it's not the only things Paul says about the purpose of the law, but these are some things I want you to see in light of where we are now. In chapter 3, verse 19, he says the law was added because of transgressions. In verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 19. So he said, what then is the purpose of the law? It was added because of transgressions. So that the law, so his point is, the law made sin clear. So that we would know we have all fallen short of God's standard. And thus knowing this, 
it would serve to help us recognize Messiah when he would come, that he would be the one who would be the provider of the righteousness we've come to realize we don't have and need. So that's what he's saying here. It was added because of transgressions. It was added because we've realized we violate the law. And the more we realize our violation of the law and our inability to do anything in and of ourselves about it, it is meant to drive us to say, who can save us from this terrible dilemma? In Romans 8, he says... um, Therefore, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Messiah Yeshua. So where do we find our deliverance? Through Messiah. For in him, there's no condemnation. In the law, there is only condemnation. Not because the law fails. It's doing its job. It's we who are sinners who fail. But the law can't deal with our failure. It can only announce it proclaim it, reveal it, multiply it, and show it. And the more we become aware of that, the more then we get driven to, so what is the answer? What is the answer? If we search for him with our whole heart, we will find him. Let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they can be as white as snow, Isaiah says. As we reason through our predicament, we're to be led to the Savior who alone can deal with our our dilemma. And, uh, and Paul says this, in light of Romans 4.15.5.20, Galatians 3.15 means the law called forth the transgressions and made them manifest. In Romans chapter 4, verse 15, for example, while you're filling that in, and of course you can always read this afterwards because you have it there. But in chapter 4, verse 15, uh, he says, for the law works wrath. For where there is no law, neither is there transgression. He's not saying where there is no law, there's no sin. He's saying there's no transgression because transgression is a violation of law. So now he's saying here, in light of this, Galatians 3.19 means the law called forth transgressions. It made it clear. It made it manifest. Where there's no law, there's no transgression. Where there is law, transgression is made clear and obvious. And he says this in 520, we saw that. So by means of the law, sin would come out in the open, as it were. Now we know. And it multiplies itself. Because, you mean that is sin? Yeah, well then that is too, and that is too, and yeah. And it starts becoming more epidemic in our lives. And in this way, the necessity of Messiah's coming in ministry is properly understood. And that's what... Messiah says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. When we realize our need, when we realize our desperation, when we realize our poverty of spirit, we're brought to a prop and brought to a proper understanding of our dilemma. It's then that we realize the necessity of Messiah's coming and we run to him. That's true of all of us. We may not know it to the depths to which we ought to, or we will as we grow in the Lord. I guess we never really know the depths of it as we ought to until we'll be in his very presence. Because none of us think of ourselves as so desperately wicked, you know. Uh, But we are. 
You know, there's none righteous. No, not one. There's none that seeks God. There's none that does this. Paul says in Romans chapter 3. But none of us really feel that way. You know, none of us believe that to be true. When we stand before the Lord, and maybe that's a grace of God, but when we stand before the Lord, we will realize how utterly helpless and deserving of hell we really are and how gracious God has been in removing that option from us. There is therefore now no condemnation for those of us who deserve every bit of condemnation as there might possibly be. The law is meant to bring that to bear, that we would fall on our face before the Lord and invite him into our lives. So the first reason we said, so what is the purpose of the law? Romans chapter 3, Galatians chapter 3, right? Um, In Galatians 3. The first reason Paul gives for the addition of the law, was, he says, was to multiply and stimulate transgressions so that we would turn to Messiah. But the second reason he gives Galatians 3 is, uh, he gives, is to confine all under the prison of sin, the bondage of sin, from which there is no escape through faith in Messiah. So the second reason he gives, not only to show that sin is multiplied so it drives it to us, but that we're in bondage. And we're in bondage to God's standards, the law. We're in bondage to sin. Um, The only thing that will get us out of this is faith in Messiah. So now notice how Paul illustrates this truth, truth. He says in verse 22, But the scripture shut up all things under sin, that the promise by faith in Messiah might be given to them that believe. Now look at verse 23. It says a similar thing. But before faith came, we were were kept inward. The phrase means we were kept shut up under the law, shut up unto the faith which should otherwise be revealed. The idea is that we were under sin. He uses the word hoopo, which is where, oh, that's right, this didn't work. Um, hold on, hold on. He uses the word hoopa, hoopa, hamardia is what under sin is. All mankind is under sin. The word shut up is the same word that he then uses in the next verse. But before faith came, we were guarded and shut up. Again, hoopa under law. So, these sentences, these verses are related. In one, we're under sin. In the other, we're under law. And in both instances, we're shut up under it. So Paul is saying there is a symmetry between sin and law. He's not saying they're identical because the law is holy, just, and good. But this is what he's saying. To be under, or naman, to be under law in the sense meant here is another way of saying we're under sin. They're almost interchangeable in this context. Not in all contexts, but in this context. To be under sin is to be under law, and to be under law is to be under sin. He's not saying the law is sin, but to be under it, he's saying, is tantamount to be undering sin. Not because they're identical, 
but because one leads to the other. This is the point. To be under law is in practice to be under sin. Not because they're identical, but because the law, while it forbids sin, it stimulates it. It stimulates the very thing it condemns. It multiplies the thing it condemns. It's a diagnostic tool, and it, and it not only diagnoses the problem, it then stimulates it at the same time. It sort of leads us into it. It's not guilty of it, but it leads us to it. And so the very thing the law condemns, it sort of necessitates we do, you know. We find ourselves doing. We cannot obey the law. And it keeps telling us, obey me, obey me. And as it tells us, obey me, it stimulates us to not obey, for sin to, uh, to rise up. So Romans 6 indicates that sin has dominion over humanity so long as it is under law, which is really fascinating, Romans 6.16. He says sin has dominion as long as we keep thinking the law can save us from it. And as long as we keep living our lives under the code of the law, we will find ourselves under the dominion of sin. Because that's the purpose of the law. The purpose of the law is not to remove sin from us. That's why the messianic movements or churches or whatever that are suggesting we should obey the law as a route to holiness is mistaken. The route to holiness is not the law. The law will only bring us more under sin. Not because it is sinful, but because it stimulates sin in us. And we think the law is meant to make us holy, but it's not. It's to reveal our sinfulness and to point us to Messiah who alone can make us holy. Holiness comes by submission to the work of the Spirit of God in our lives. And that's why that work is referred to as the royal law the law of Messiah in the New Covenant. It is not the Mosaic Law. We can learn from the Mosaic Law. It's the Word of God. So all Scripture is uh, profitable for teaching and correction and rebuking and you know correction and leading and teaching in righteousness. Um, but I'm going to bring it to a close. So Romans 6.16 indicates that sin has dominion over humanity so long as it is under law. Read this through, check it out, reflect it. So one illustration, one way to illustrate what Paul is saying here is this. Think of the written law is the warden who locks up the lawbreaker, the sinner, in the prison house, which is uh, the prison house of sin, which is the jailer who's guarding us. The law is the warden who is overseeing the prison house. Everybody that comes through his doors ends up in his prison. And all sinners end up there. The prison house, uh, the lawbreaker is the sinner. The prison house in which we are located has a jailer. The jailer uh, is the sin. That's what has enslaved us. 
those who come to their senses that are in this prison, they come to their senses realizing their hopelessness, will be all the more ready to embrace the promise of liberty and life that is imbibed in the promise to Abraham. And that's that's why Paul says that the law was added alongside the promise to Abraham. When it says added alongside, it doesn't mean added as a supplement. He means added as a distinctive entity unto itself. And the only way it can serve to lead us to the promise is if we understand its true purpose, which is to reveal our hopelessness, which can only be found in the promise made to Abraham in your seed, your descendant, shall all the families of the earth be blessed. The Abrahamic covenant is the place we want to be, not the Mosaic covenant. The Mosaic covenant is a pathway. If we recognize the bondage we are in to sin, and therefore to the law, because it will not get us out of the prison. The law is the warden, and he's not going to let us out. And sin is the jailer. Every time we sin, it's like we're opening a door, he throws us back in. And the warden is up here who, is, who has uh, basically put us there because of our violation. We cannot get out. The jailer won't let us out, which is our sin. And the warden, the law, cannot enable us to leave. So we're in this state We come to our senses and we say, the only way out is not through the warden. The warden is letting us know, you're not making it out through me. The only way out is by something else that the warden was added alongside to. That something else is the Abrahamic promise, the Abrahamic covenant, which says, in your seed, Abraham, your descendant, shall all the families of the earth get out, will be blessed with salvation. It is in that way we get out, not this way. And that way has made clear, now that Messiah has come, that seed, who is our high priest, not after the order of the law, but after a separate order that's independent of the law, that now can enable us to stand fully righteous before God, and can enable us to become righteous like our Messiah, step by step, stage by stage, until we're, form, we're fully conformed to the image of our Messiah when we are in his very presence and we see him as he is. Now we're on a journey. We keep moving up the ladder of righteousness, then we drop down a little bit, we go up, we drop down, we go up. By the end of our life, We will not be like we were in that prison house of sin, either because of our state as sinners or because of our practice as sinners. We'll have been less practicing of sin, and we are no longer categorized as sinners because of the righteousness of Messiah and because of the righteous ways or empowerment of Messiah. So those who come to their senses finally realize 
The law only lets us know just how locked up we are. It's Messiah who comes another way, who observes all the law in our behalf and bears all the consequences of the law in our behalf that can now open the cell and and enable us to walk out through sin and through the warden, the law, and to be made righteous by his grace and to be made his child by his grace. It's all of grace and it's all of him. And that's why when a person accepts the Lord into their life and experiences salvation, the first word we say are not, I'm glad I deserve that. I'm glad I've done the right thing. I'm glad. The first words we simply say are, thank you, because he has done it for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us. We're grateful for the presence of your spirit who helps us to understand better and better. And we're grateful, Father, for the reality of the things we're talking about. Um, we are... Thinking, talking about ideas and interpretation and reflecting on the meaning of words. But in the final analysis, there is a reality to them. And that reality is we have been transformed from the kingdom of darkness, from the dungeon of sin, into the marvelous light of the kingdom of our Messiah. And so, Lord, we are grateful for what you have done for us. May we never grow tired of reflecting on it. May we always be amazed by the truth of it. And Father, may we always be conscious of the need to become more like our Messiah through whom we have life and have it more abundantly. So we give you all honor and praise. Give us a safe trip home now, we pray. May it be a joyous one indeed, for we pray in Messiah's name. Amen.